So um, we got a we got a caller on the line. Adam, you want to um, bring in that caller, see what he has to say before we uh, before we get to Louise? I will uh, try my best. Yes, I will. All right. Ben, we may need your help. I'm not. I'm not sure if uh, we'll we'll see. While we're waiting for um, while we're waiting for Adam to bring the caller on the line, um, we do have a great overtime lined up. Uh, so, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for staying Absolutely. with us. Uh, for our caller, you should be live now. If you can say something and see if we can hear you. Yeah, I don't hear him. Uh, well, if you want to uh, stay on the line there. And we'll try to get you sorted out and get you in on the show. Uh, and we also have Louise Leon. He is in the waiting room, so he will be coming on shortly. Uh, really excited about that. He's one of my favorite writers with yeah, Labor man. Notes. He and has Times. he has really been doing the uh, he's really been doing great work on the Amazon Labor Union stuff. Um, the phone number, uh, and you can also text us, 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. Um, and uh, we've, we've got some other good stuff coming up. We're going to be talking about how Tim James uh, proposes to bring down the prison population. We're going to be talking about Elon Musk um, and the AEA doing something cool. So... We're going to go ahead and uh, uh, take a break quick while we uh, figure out the phone situation and uh, get ready for overtime. So uh, thanks for staying with us, and we will be right back. Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now off the radio. We are online. We've gotten rid of the FCC censors. We can say whatever the hell we want. We're in overtime. We've got some really good stuff. Luis Leon is in the waiting room. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about the Amazon Labor Union. But before that, we had a call. Uh, we had a caller, so we wanted to bring them on the line uh, really quick. Get that out of the way before we bring Luis on. Uh, Luis on. So, uh, caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? 
My name is Charles, and I'm calling from the Eva, Alabama area. Eva, Alabama. The reason that I called, I, I want to tell you guys that your interviews are excellent. I listen to you practically every week, especially where it had to do against the protest. Um, mm. And, and you, you know, since the ability to protest and, and your interview was excellent with the guy that was trying to bring that bill up. Thank you. Yeah, that was a heck of an interview. <laughs> excellent. Uh, but what I want, you guys named every gubernatorial candidate on the Republican, but you didn't name Stacey Lee George. And he is for criminal justice reform, taking care of the prison population thing, everything about it, in a way that would go along with a Democrat point of view and for getting rid of corruption in particular republican republican corruption going on and so i wanted to make you guys aware of looking at the platform and recognizing that there really is someone on the republican that is willing to reach hands across the aisle and and make you aware of that yeah i i even mention him when it came to this yeah, I appreciate that and I um and I just haven't seen anything hardly uh anything hardly from him and and that was and and that that was basically it. But yeah, I am definitely he has he has YouTubes. Mm. One of the YouTubes is about 40 minutes about taking care of the prison in a way that mm-hmm. I believe you guys would approve of. Okay. Yeah, well, I I'll, I'll have criminal to justice. Hold Holding court-appointed attorneys accountable to give adequate legal representation, and you don't usually hear these type things. Right. So please give it a view, um, StacyLeeGeorge.com, and look him up on YouTube, and I think you're going to be surprised. And and even though some things like the budget and those type things, he is very conservative in spending, Mm -hmm. but there are several issues that have to do with things that you guys would care about and I appreciate you taking my call and keep up the good work. Oh yeah, I appreciate Absolutely. it. And and you know we're we're definitely not opposed to stuff like that. We 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 brought on uh, Terrence Ireland, who who's kind of similar. Uh, he's a Republican. He's running on, running for state house district two. Uh, the North Alabama Labor Council endorsed him. Actually, uh, there's no Democrat in that race. Um, so definitely not opposed to to that. I think you know we've kind of got to be kind of got to be realistic as far as. Um, Oh, callers muted on YouTube. It says, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, he he was calling about telling us about the caller was telling us about Stacy Lee George saying that uh, that there's there's several things that that his platform is um, that's in line with with folks what folks on the left might appreciate as far as prison reform. Um, I think marijuana and uh, holding. Court appointed uh, prosecutors, attorneys, attorneys accountable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, he mentioned Stacey Lee George running for governor. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I'll check that out because yeah, we'll check that out. I think we need people speaking to the criminal justice crisis in every race, honestly, uh, from governor all the way down. And I, I saw um, a couple of folks who are district attorney candidates in Limestone County. Actually, I mean, both Republicans who who were speaking that kind of language. Now, are they just talking the talk because that's the appropriate thing to say when you're being sued and taken to court by the Department of Justice? I I don't know. Uh, But I hope that this is a sign that even among the more right wing 
elements of our government that they're recognizing that the current status quo of over-incarceration cannot hold. It is failing the people of Alabama, disproportionately failing working-class people, poor people, people of color. Uh, it's It puts law enforcement at risk, frankly, uh, when you really look at it. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks, thanks for calling and appreciate your support of the show. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, uh, and, and we're actually going to be talking about Tim James's answer to mass incarceration after we get done talking to Louise. Well, that'll be a good that'll be a good uh, little <laughs> contrast. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and bring bring him on, uh, Louise Felice Leon. He is a staff writer for Labor Notes. Um, Louise, thanks for joining the show. I appreciate it. Have we got him on? Uh... Yeah, Louise is on. Looks like he was still muted. So we're trying to get that uh, taken care of. Can you hear us? He may have stepped away for just a sec okay. while we uh, talked with our caller there. Yeah, well, so last time we talked to Luis, um, we talked to him about the uh, about the Bessemer campaign. And I remember at that time he was like, well, uh, I asked him about the Amazon labor union. And this was before the first vote. It was right before the first vote was going to happen. And I asked him about it. And he was like, well, I haven't really I haven't really done a whole lot of reporting on that. I don't really know much about it. I, I can't really speak speak to it um and 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 now he, he has he has written i mean i think the definitive you know the definitive reporting on the amazon labor union has come from louise i think well louise just let us know when you are back online hey, yeah, oh yeah, here we yeah, go thank awesome. you so much i was listening to the youtube channel <laughs> so, so there was a lag there so thank you thank you jacob for those kind words <laughs> yes last time i spoke to you folks i didn't want to comment because i had not done the work of talking to the workers and you know at labor notes we try to you know, we try to do what's unheard of, which is go directly to the workers and, and talk to them. So um, so without having done that, I didn't feel I was in a place to to speak about the Amazon labor union. But I feel right. that has changed now. <laughs> definitely. I mean, yeah, definitely. Seriously, folks, if you haven't if you haven't read much or if you haven't read Luis's work about it, you've you've got to, I mean, read his work in, in Labor Notes, in The American Prospect, in um, in The Real News. I think he's got he's got articles about the Amazon Labor Union and all those places. They're all very fantastic. And so since we last spoke, they've had the, the first election, which was a, a huge win, and then the second election, which was which was kind of a big loss as far as the numbers are. It was a smaller cent- it was a smaller sortation center, but you know, it was like two to one against the union. So let's start let's start with the first election. How did wh- what were some of the things that came out um, from your reporting on the first election at the fulfillment center in Staten Island that won the union election, um, what were some of the things that stood out to you as you were talking to workers in that in that center? Yeah, um, so I, I just recently wrote the cover story for Indies Times about the win at 
the Amazon, um, the Amazon labor union had at the JFK eight uh, fulfillment center on Staten Island. And one of the things I highlighted in that article was the fact that, yes, <laughs> I've got it right here. <laughs> beautiful cover, right? It is a beautiful yeah, cover. I don't know if, yes. if folks can see that, but yeah, it's, it's really nice. It's a good one. Um, so one of the things that I try to highlight in that, um, in that profile is the fact that there were three groupings that were critical to the success at JFK 8. One of those groupings was veteran workers, people like Derek Palmer, people like Chris Smalls, who had been at Amazon for more than five years. Um, and that made them, in, in terms of how Amazon workers describe themselves, veterans. Um, you also had mm-hmm. folks that went into the warehouse with a political commitment to organize. Um, that doesn't necessarily make them salts because usually salts are paid by a union to go in with the intention of, you know, organizing. These are people that were roving socialists, if you will, that were seeking a cost to support. And once Chris, Derek, Gerald, Bryson and Jordan Flowers walked out in March of 2020, they went around the country protesting at Jeff Bezos's mansions. And through that process of uh, these protests, they attracted uh, fellow travelers, if you will. Um, And these folks came to JFK 8 and took up jobs there. Um, Another group uh, is obviously the folks that, you know, led this walkout. So people like Gerald Bryson, Jordan Flowers, uh, Derek Palmer and Chris Smalls. They were the four, the original four leaders of the Congress of Essential Workers, and they had moral authority um, to talk about the abuses of power at Amazon. You know, they went out and protested to keep their co-workers safe. And that's something that resonated with their co-workers. That facility had been open since 2018. So that meant that they had built relationships with some of those veteran workers we all know that the turnover at Amazon is about 150%. Um, so to me, it was striking to learn that in addition to Chris and Derek, there were all these other workers like Michelle Valentin Nieves, who had been there for about three years. And they were a familiar face on the shop floor that workers could turn to um, when you know, they had any grievances against management. So I think that was key to their success was that they had a deep bench of natural leaders that um, could connect with and with workers at the at the warehouse. Right. People that that they could identify with. What do you think? um, How how did they go about how did they go? What what was their what was their strategy uh, that you feel like? made them able to win where nobody you know you you've you've got those four groups of workers um and and obviously that what was it about those groups of workers that made them successful where where everybody else has failed you know amazon has has been around for 20 or 30 years and nobody has been able, you know, million dollar campaigns have lost huge petitions have been filed and withdrawn. Um, and these people, you know, nobody's with nothing. Right. I mean, and they were able to to win an election by by a real substantial margin. 
what separate what was it just that do you, something that they that they said a lot was that their independence um helped them is do, do you, does that track with with your conversations with other workers at the facility that their independence helped them um yes and no i mean there were workers that i spoke to that said we're waiting for the teamsters <laughs> you know so for some workers <laughs> the fact that they were a scrappy independent union was um uh, uh, was a deficit, right? It was not a, uh, something that, that, that was appealing to some workers. Um, so they had, to, they had to persuade enough workers that they were a credible union, right? So I think where they were effective, here's where we get to the yes part to your question, was that a lot of times one of the things that union busters do is they try to third party the union, say that it's this outside entity that you know, is trying to organize workers. In this case, that argument fell flat because the workers themselves were the ones building this union. Um, and the things that they did, the culture of organizing that they built with cookouts, with you know sharing, uh, breaking bread together in the common areas, that was all something that was driven by the workers and by their own understanding of how Amazon mistreated and alienates workers so they try to counter that alienation by creating bonds of solidarity. So I think that one of the things that contributed to their success was definitely the fact that they were an independent union, the fact that they were not handicapped by uh, the risk aversion, the fear that cripples uh, the official labor movement. Those those um, those handicaps were not there for them. And they were able to maximize on their scrappiness and creativity because there was no playbook that they were really following. I mean, they did read Jane McAlevey. They read William C. Foster, a communist organizer from the 1930s. Um, but that was among some of the more self-identified leftists. But it's important to not take away from the Black leadership of this movement um, and the folks that that started this were Chris, Derek, Gerald Bryson, uh, Jordan Flowers. There was there were the ones that set this in motion, and they were not reading uh, William C. Foster. You know, they just they were just organic mm. uh, leaders. Um, so I, I think I go back and forth in terms of like what was their secret sauce, right? And I think what I've settled on is that there was a lot of what we talk about at Labor Notes around rank and file organizing. Like this was something that was genuinely driven by workers that was bottom up. And I think that that really had an appeal for workers. Another thing that I've said in describing this victory is that it was characterized by momentum organizing. So a lot of the organizing that we have seen, especially at places like the News Guild that has been very successful um, has been an organizing powerhouse in New York City and across the country um, is structure based organizing where people map out, you know, the leaders, they they make sure that um, they have solid majorities before filing for an election. So we didn't see any of that here. We saw a very fearless campaign where workers put everything on the line and they won. Some of the some of the things that you mentioned, as far as the risk averseness of the official labor movement, uh, would be captured by the fact that nobody files for an election without at least 
50 percent and that's even incredibly rare usually it's they never file without 60 70 80 90 percent of cards Uh, whereas the amazon labor union filed with 30 percent uh which is looking back on it 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 makes a lot of sense because the turnover is so high but that's something that that just other unions would have refused to do right right absolutely yeah i mean I, I wrote a piece for uh, a publication based out of New York called um, uh, New York Focus, where I kind of looked at how um, a lot of experts within the labor movement kind of discounted their their chances of winning. And, and one of the things that was commonly referenced was the fact that they they filed with mm-hmm. 30% or yep. like ba- the bare minimum, right? Um, and right. I got some pushback from a fellow, a friend that's organizer of SEIU. He said, well, in healthcare, we filed sometimes with, with that. But here's the rub. Uh, those units were about 30 people. You know, they were very small, like healthcare units. This was a warehouse of 8,000 plus workers. So it's a different ball game, you know, to file uh, with that. Right. You know, the, the fact that they did cookouts, like I, I used to be in, a researcher with 32BJ SEIU a property services uh, union that represents porters and um, security guards and airport uh, employees in New York and, and, and New Jersey. And I remember when we were preparing for, for campaigns, like, you know, we had to legalize everything before we took any steps. So imagine mm-hmm. doing a cookout by a bus stop. I think a union would be worried that <laughs> that the canopy of the bus right. will catch fire and you know they will be liable. <laughs> so right, so even right. something as simple as that, not to mention, you know, the fact that they were also giving out weed, which is uh legalized in New York, you know, I I, I don't think an official union would have looked upon that, you know, favorably as a as a, right. as a tactic. <laughs> Right. And, you know, that is kind of funny that you got some pushback about saying that filing with 30 percent is not common because everybody I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just I've, I talked to a lot of people in the run up to this and there were there was actually concern about like these people are going to screw it up for the rest of us. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was there was some real, uh, you know. I don't want to say antagonism, but but there was there was real genuine like worry that that not only are they going to lose, but but it's going to be bad for for you know the the big dogs for the, for the real unions to come in there after and try to clean up their mess. Yeah, I mean we heard the same thing about Bessemer, right? Where people people said you you only go into an organizing campaign when you know that you've done your homework you you've covered your mm-hmm. your basis because what what it results when you don't do that is demoralization right we saw the opposite happen right. after after the the first loss in Bessemer we saw that it actually um they were one of the inspirations for the Staten Island campaign right right well i mean folks were f- folks were looking at what happened they went down to Bessemer they saw how things were going and they said, we're going to do it differently. So for them, they kind of drew a negative lesson from that and said, like, this is why you have to do it re- worker led. Um, so. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely did play a role in terms of their strategy, because one thing that's important to remember about this campaign, it's that it was kind of two years in the making, but it wasn't. It wasn't like in a calculated way. It wasn't as though they said after the walkout, you know, we're going to first do this walkout. Then we're going to generate excitement. 
and then we're going to petition to form, you know, to petition for an election and form an independent union. None of that was in the cards at that point in time. They were trying to draw attention to the unfair firings, to the plight of essential workers at Amazon warehouses and throughout the country. And then through that process of struggling um, against Amazon and other employers and their college treatment of workers, they decided that they were going to form an independent union. So I think it's just remarkable how that happened uh, because it, it just goes back to the importance of union democracy, to the importance of worker-led movements uh, that are not, you know, created from the top down um, to generate buzz and excitement. Like this was something that was real. And, and I think because it was real, people were able to get behind it because it wasn't manufactured in any way. It was a genuine rank and file upsurge. One of the things that we talked about last time you were on is there was a change in tactics from the best in the Bessemer mm-hmm. campaign, um, and I think that you know I, I know I know people that have been that were on both campaigns that organized in both campaigns, and and you know I think that there's there's a bit of I think there is a bit of frustration from people, especially on the first campaign, you know, as far as like. You know, they were like, we were doing the best that we could, right? And and you know that there, you know, the 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 contrast between the Staten Island campaign and the first Bessemer campaign, I think, is kind of frustrating to some of those folks. And I totally understand that. You know, they were like, people forget, like we were in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic, right? We didn't have vaccines. People were nervous. Like we, you know, we the house calls seemed really scary to people and and you know we were trying to do the best that, that we could but you know noted that in in the second campaign there were house calls uh they were taking actions uh they were winning things how do you feel the you know about the 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 strategies employed by the second Bessemer campaign and the first Staten Island campaign how do they stack up Compare and contrast them, kind of, kind of. If I'm not being too rambling. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I mean, I think it goes down to the fact that they just had a deeper bench, you know, of rank and file leaders. I mean, I've heard um, different mm-hmm. things from the RWDSU folks that they had their their core committee was about 20 people, which is similar to what they had in Staten Island. But here's the thing: the folks in Staten Island were at the warehouse every day all day you know they were basically there 12 13 hours a day under days off after working 12 hour shifts so they were living and breathing organizing every single day and what was propelling them to do that was a firm conviction that they wanted a union and that the conditions at amazon were uh you know were just terrible enough that they were going to put everything on the line i think when you when you have that level of initiative on the workers part, like that's something that can be replicated. I feel with RWDSU, um, they had folks outside, you know, and they were doing things, but they were not necessarily um, at the warehouse, you know, 24 seven, they were not um, like their visibility was not as high as it was for the folks on Staten Island. Um, Another thing too, is that the facility in Bessemer is, is a newer facility, right? So, I remember when I went down to Alabama for the first election and, you know, given all the 
all the comms resources that were put into elevating Jennifer Bates and Daryl Richardson as like the leaders of, of this, of that campaign. I asked workers about that. I asked like, oh, so uh, what do you think about Jennifer? What do you think about Daryl? You know, and they didn't know them. And because the warehouse was so new and it's so massive that they just didn't have a chance, you know, to, um, to build that familiarity. I don't know if that changed or how much that changed this time around. But this is the thing that we always say at Labor Notes. Workers choose their leaders. It's not the other way mm -hmm. around. So when you come in and you're an official union and you three or four workers reach out to you and say like, hey, we have people are hot under the collar. They're demanding a union. And then those folks become the spokespeople. That might work. Or it might not, because it's hard to assess what their standing is in the warehouse. And that's where it matters the most. So when, by contrast, when I spoke to people about why they supported the union, they talked to me about Chris Smalls. They talked to me about Derek Palmer. They talked to me about members of the committee. So they were familiar with the people um, that were pushing for this union. And they could reference them by name and say to me at shift change, Oh yeah, I spoke to I spoke to Michelle, I spoke to Karen, I spoke to Maddie. So it was just a level of familiarity that was just not the case uh, in Bessemer. Now, here's the thing. Mm. Part of that was aided by the fact that the workers in New York were taking public transit. So they were lingering mm. after they got out of the warehouse. I think to be fair, the folks right. in in um and Bessemer had a tougher chance because people were leaving the warehouse. They were getting in their cars and driving right. um, home. So there was not that much of an opportunity for them to, you know, to spend time with folks. They could have done it during the break areas. They could have done food. But the thing is that it also has to be true to the context, right? Like what is true hmm. of the of the context in, in Alabama that's different from New York? So in New York, it did resonate with workers that um, the union was feeding them, that the union was visible at the bus stop. In Bessemer, it would have been, it would have been interesting to, you know, to figure that out. The only people that know the answer to that would be the workers that are in the, in the warehouse. So I think those are two things. Um, another thing about the house visits, right? Uh, the Amazon labor union tried house visits and then workers said, workers got very angry about it. They said, if somebody shows up at my house, I'm going to fuck them up. <laughs> you know, so, so <laughs> this is New York. In New York, it's not, you know, you don't want people bothering you coming to your, that Southern hospitality doesn't exist out here. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, they didn't get invited in for sweet tea and biscuits. Exactly. No, they didn't. And Which <laughs> I did multiple times when I went, when I went house visiting with RWDSU, I went in and we, I, I don't think. Nobody, people offered me tea and stuff, but it wasn't, uh, you know, we didn't get any biscuits, but, but yeah, it was definitely, I did get invited in and I sat and talked to people for, right. for, a while, for quite a while. Right, right. But this is the thing, right? Like they were really attuned to the realities of the workforce in Staten Island, right? Not, not some abstract, you know, lesson or theory. So, so when the playbook says you must do house visits, you know, they tried that, but then they tore up, they shifted very quickly once it became clear to them that in addition to a lack of Southern hospitality, workers were also embarrassed about their living conditions and they didn't want to invite people mm. in. You know, a lot of the workers that I spoke to were working two jobs in order to make ends meet. 
So, so they didn't want to invite people into their homes um, and kind of feel ashamed of how they were living. So that, that also factored in. So because there was a small group of workers, that information was captured and they acted on it fairly quickly, right? In a traditional union campaign, you know, you have to go through the ropes um, in order to implement like a shift in strategy. It doesn't happen uh, by the flip of a, of a, of a coin toss. Um, so I think that mm-hmm. that's one of the things that, that aided the, um, the independent union in Staten Island. They were just more nibble in terms of responding to things. So if, if they saw, hey, a worker approached us from the African community at a captive audience meeting, they figured out how do we get that person involved? And then Brima Sila became one of the leaders. This was two months into the organizing. He set up a WhatsApp chat group with a lot of African workers. He was multilingual. So he had a lot of respect and standing within the Staten Island community and specifically among immigrant um, African workers. So they were just able to bring people in fairly quickly. And that's not always the case, you know, in a big in a big campaign um, where you have a chain of command that you have to escalate things, you know, through. Um, so I think that, I, I think that's, those were decisive, you know, factors, but I think ultimately the fact that the warehouse had been around for a much longer time, I think was very key. Right. And those veteran workers. So what, right. So what was the difference then between, do you think that, that was the, that was the key that maybe there weren't as many veteran workers in the second Staten Island because the second Staten Island election did end with a loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you feel? Yeah. What do you feel like the differences were between those two campaigns, even though they were run by the same union? Yeah, no, I think that's a key point um, that you hit on. Like, absolutely. They didn't have a deep bench at LDJ five, the sortation center. Um, the face of the campaign were um, folks that had gone in with the intention of organizing. Um, and the facility had opened in March of 2020. So it's relatively new. It's made up of it's the same age as Bessemer. Right. It's made up of uh, part timers. And, you know, a lot of the, the part timers, they, they didn't really have those deeply felt grievances that you had at JFK 8, when you talk to workers, even the workers that were adamant about voting against the union, they would talk about the fact that the 12 hour shifts were destroying their bodies, that, you know, they couldn't they couldn't endure um, at Amazon more than three months because the the setup of the work environment was one that just burned through people Uh, at LDJ five folks were doing 15 hours a week. They had a second job. Um, The main complaint was the fact that they didn't have enough hours. Some people wanted to be full time. Uh, So it was a very different environment. And because they didn't have as deep a bench, they had to rely on some of the natural leaders from JFK 8. And again, if you go back to what I said initially, the campaign at JFK 8 was two years in the making. If you know, even though it wasn't planned that way, that's the reality. They were organizing and agitating people for two years. So they didn't have as much time uh, with with the LDJ5 warehouse. And it's a different kind of warehouse, right? So 
those deeply felt grievances were just not um, were just not true at LDJ five. And the work was not as grueling. You know, some people said, you know, the job is relatively easy. I, I don't, all I want is for Amazon to, when I become certified to drive a forklift, I just want to be paid more because of that. So, mm. um, so those were the concerns. Um, how has the, uh, how has the ALU responded to the, the, the loss? I mean, I think what they are doing is trying to build up, like similar to the folks at RWDSU and Bessemer, they're thinking about, even though we didn't win, there were we got a sizable number of folks that supported the union. We're going to continue to act like a union within the warehouse and continue to build on that, uh, which is the same thing I've heard from the RWDSU folks in, in Bessemer. You know, even though they lost, they or I mean, it hasn't been certified, but it's, it seems that it's trending to a loss. Um, they are going to build on the number of folks that they were able to bring in. Uh, so I think uh, for the folks at, at LDJ5, it will be the same. It will be a, a matter of how do they continue to keep those folks engaged. Right now, they have to begin prepping for contract uh, negotiations, even though Amazon has refused to recognize the union um, and is stalling and is going to continue to stall. They have to continue to prepare their their troops to put it everything on the line, including shutting down the facility to get recognition and begin bargaining. So they have a lot of work still ahead of them. How, what about uh, expanding the campaign? Uh, Chris Smalls has, he went on a, it was Fox Business or Bloomberg Business, and I think he, he was like trolling uh, the, the, the host. He said, the host asked like how many other uh, warehouses, and he said something about, we've got contacts at every single Amazon warehouse in the country. And, you know, I don't doubt that, but, uh, you know, if you, if you know, you know, Having one contact at every at, at one warehouse of, of eight thousand people doesn't you know that 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 doesn't a campaign make. But you know wh- what are the serious um, plans th- that you know of to expand in New York and and, and nationwide? I mean, or, or do you know anything about their priorities as far as like mm-hmm. are are they going to try to fight for a contract harder at JFK eight and then try to expand? Or are they going to try to do vice versa or are they going to try to do both at the same time and you know uh and all of that is going to take support from the organized labor movement i i think and and so what how does how is how is organized labor going to play into the campaign moving forward and and i know that was a lot but but i think you can handle it <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the vote of confidence um so <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't want to speak for the independent union. What I what I can say is that um, they are going to hold a convening, a national convening after the labor notes conference. It was going to happen in June, but they're all coming to labor notes. Um, there are going to be opportunities at labor notes to meet with other Amazon workers across the country and the world. We're going to have Amazon workers from Poland, from Germany, uh, from other countries come uh, and be part of a, of a meeting with uh, with all the folks that are trying to organize Amazon in the U.S. Um, so that's one thing that I, I hope will be productive and fruitful for, for all the workers that are trying to take on Amazon. Um, in terms of the 
you know, the, the strategy of what happens with all those folks that have reached out to them. Uh, we at Labor Notes um, facilitated a conversation between uh, different workers uh, across the country, including Cause, which is based out of North Carolina. Uh, they're they're working with the Southern Workers Assembly. Uh, they're they're a small committee of about. I mean, they've told me they have about eighty people that are trying to file for elections uh, in Gardner, uh, North Carolina, I believe. And, you know, they're, they've heard from folks like that all over the country. Um, I think what would aid them the most is for them to focus on winning a contract at JFK 8, for other workers to support that fight by starting a bunch of fires at other facilities throughout the country to bring some pressure to bear on Amazon and so that they can negotiate, uh, you know, have some leverage in negotiations. I think that it would be it would be very difficult, given their their numbers, for them to divide their forces and dispatch organizers across the country. But definitely holding calls with co-work with workers across the country, sharing their lessons, uh, consulting. I think that that would definitely be helpful. Um, but it, I don't want to underestimate the challenges of a first contract when you only organize one facility. Amazon is adamantly anti-union and they don't want this momentum that the Amazon labor union has on leash to catch on and to spread to other warehouses. So to the extent that the Amazon labor union can spark other rebellions and other warehouses, by their example, that would be the right way to go. Right. Absolutely. And Jacob, I'm going I'm to jump in here just yeah, for a sec. Uh, you probably want to ask more about what Amazon is doing uh, to continue their anti-union drive. But something you mentioned earlier that stood out to me was that both ALU and RWDSU here in Alabama, even in uh, you know the face of a, a disappointing election result they're still sticking around they're still acting as if they're the union uh, because they you know they are regardless of the uh, election results they can still operate as a union and organize and represent workers and sounds like that's what they're doing and i just wanted to you know highlight that because there's a bad reputation throughout the history of organized labor especially here in the south where you know the the big unions come in they try to plant they lose they pack up and you never hear from them again i you know i don't know how prevalent that is in more modern organizing but that's definitely something that has uh you know stuck around i think in the imagination of workers who experience that so uh i think that's really promising and i think that is something that gives me some optimism that we're not repeating some of those same mistakes of the past, uh, you know, because I, I think that would just be so deflating were that to occur, uh, to to live up to that stereotype of just coming in, hoping you can win. When you don't, you, you, you know, dip out of town. I, I think that would just be incredibly demoralizing. So to hear that, you know, in both situations with different types of unions, different types of facilities, the organizers are sticking around. I think that's very positive. All right. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I hope that continues to be the case. I mean, the Mid-South Council is not, you know, on despite what Amazon says, it's not like a, they're not parachuting. <laughs> they're parachuting right. from Huntsville, you know, right. and uh, Birmingham. They're parachuting from Birmingham and Huntsville. To, right. So, they're just hopping in the car going down the road. Right, right, yeah, right. They're right. not coming in from, from headquarters. But, right. yeah, I think that's really promising, and I think mm-hmm. that is going to be essential to combat the really deep anti-union tactics that Amazon's deploying. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I mean, the, the thing is that after the first election, right, um, the RWDSU did, you know, in terms of national clout, you know, they, they took a big um, step in saying, you know, we're going to take on this behemoth and, you know, people doubted them, but it was definitely the right call, you know, to to take a swing at Amazon. And what will happen, what will be determinative going forward is once the Teamsters begin, you know, organizing weather and the spotlight kind of shifts from different unions and the work they're doing, that folks can remain committed to the workers that are there and continue to bring in new leaders and new folks uh, to the work. I mean, you think about the organizing that has happened uh, at Smithfield in North Carolina, like that was a mm. decades long fight. So in terms of organizing Amazon, I think it's going to take years. And this momentum right now may potentially be sapped depending on what happens with mm-hmm. inflation and if we enter into a recession. So that's why the time is now. If you are an Amazon worker and you're thinking of organizing a union, do it now. Uh, now is the right. time to act. Strike while the iron is hot. Because we don't know what will happen uh, with a, a new administration, presumably if the Democrats were to lose. You know, the NLRB has played a constructive role. Uh, we have seen, like, with Starbucks workers, they just, um, they just issued a Giselle order, which is very rare um, in Buffalo because of how extreme the union busting was. I heard earlier Jacob mention that Starbucks workers in Alabama are also trying to organize. So we just need a wildfire of organizing uh, to continue to build this momentum. Um, the, what we're seeing right now is momentum organizing. The moment of strategic campaigns, as important as those are, um, that, that's in the past. Maybe it will come back. Who knows where things are uh, in a few years. But right now, I would say we are in with Starbucks, with retail workers in Massachusetts, we saw Trader Joe's organize. Uh, we saw Apple Store workers organizing. So we just need more and more of that. Yeah, the um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the the it it's definitely the time to 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 organize wherever you are uh, to try to reinvigorate your union um, it, because the the labor market uh, it, it's just everything is is really it, it's just a really good time to organize um, you know there's obviously still going to be a lot of risk because it, it, it's still going to be hard but um, but and, and a point you made earlier was that the more Amazon facilities across the country are undergoing organizing campaigns and the more workers themselves in these facilities can step up as leaders and, and take it upon themselves and not necessarily like wait for Chris Smalls to show up, 
mm-hmm. the more they're doing that, the the more that helps that contract fight at JFK eight, and I think that's right. huge. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. I think it's you, you got to look at it as kind of a guerrilla warfare thing, and the more the more spots they have to to deal with, the more you spread their resources. And I know it seems like Amazon has unlimited resources, and and in a lot of ways, I guess it that's that's an accurate feeling, but. They do still have to plan. They do right. still have to spend money, and uh, the more their attention can be divided, I think that that really does uh, play into our hands. Right. How do you feel about the the fact that we're going to have multiple unions going after Amazon, and now we're having multiple unions going after Starbucks? In the past, turf wars were... They played a very big role in the labor movement. They were the source of a lot of fights. They were the source of a lot of controversy and contention. Um, With Starbucks, we've got now UFCW organizing in Wisconsin, and we've got Teamsters now organizing in New York, I believe it was, uh, Local 130, I think, or maybe 13. And and then, of course, you've got the Amazon Labor Union – in New York, you've got the RWDSU in Alabama, and then you have the the team, the new Teamsters president Sean O'Brien being quoted in Bloomberg as saying that he wants the Teamsters to be the only union to organize Amazon, which I have to think that the that that's a misquote because that does not track with his behavior with his meeting with Chris Smalls with his with the Teamsters support of the RWDSU I mean I don't understand that comment um but you know I mean how all of the unions have been supportive of ALU in public how true do you think that is do you I mean are are we looking at at the beginning of, of really ugly and distracting turf wars for Amazon and Starbucks? Or do you think that that the labor movement will be able to be more cooperative? And, um, yeah, do, do you think we'll be able to be more cooperative yeah. going forward? I mean, I think the song that – the current tune that everyone is singing is cooperation. Uh, <laughs> but that can always change, you know, once the stakes are higher. Right. So I feel like right now – uh, the American postal workers have thrown their support behind the Amazon labor union. The Teamsters have as well. Um, in terms of strategic sectors, I mean, I do think it is. I think it, the labor movement does have to be strategic in terms of thinking about like what makes sense in terms of our industry, like for us to organize. Um, so the 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 idea that you have unions that are hot shopping and have a little bit of, you know, uh, healthcare, a little bit of education, a little bit of everything, it just reduces their power. And I know that it's been in response to, to the decline of manufacturing in certain, for certain unions, like uh, uh, the radio workers, UE, for instance, you know, a militant union, they just had a big victory by organizing MIT workers, um, and obviously, you know, they they've lost uh, members to once General Electric started offshoring its jobs. So it's been a very real struggle to to grow uh, as a union that has been concentrated in in a manufacturing base. Right. Like, obviously, manufacturing is not gone. That's still that's an overstated claim. 
but it's definitely declined right. from its peak uh, and unions have suffered as a consequence. So, so I think the way to approach that is to think about how can unions come together as a coalition and say, we're going to take up this big behemoth and how are we going to carve it out so that there's an agreement based on strategy for the Teamsters, it would make sense for them to prioritize delivery stations within Amazon's network, for them to prioritize those third-party contractors because they're a direct threat to UPS drivers. So, I mean, that is in there. It's an existential threat to the survival of the Teamsters and for, for the workers to retain the standard of living as Teamsters drivers, um, they have to respond to that threat uh, from Amazon. So... So I I think that's one way to kind of take what O'Brien said and and say, okay, if the Teamsters were to focus on delivery stations, who focuses on the fulfillment centers? Who focuses on the sortation facilities, right? Because Amazon has a lot of different uh, warehouses. Who takes on the web services division, the most profitable division within Amazon? Those workers have to also be organized. Mm. So think of what the News Guild did by organizing the tech workers at the New York Times. They realized that moving forward, when it comes to contract negotiations, they're going to have greater leverage by having the tech workers in the same union with journalists. So I do think the labor movement and the unions that have some skin in the game when it comes to organizing Amazon, they, they need to put together some kind of consortium and think about how are we going to organize this large company? I mean, that UFCW led the way with Walmart, which it still needs to be organized. But there's also Target. Um, there's also, you right. know, like, so, so yeah, I mean, I think the turf wars are going to happen. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's to some degree inevitable uh, that unions are going to try uh, to, to pursue a shortcut. But I think right now um, there is some real momentum behind a more rank and file um, led uh, efforts to organize. And the unions are kind of following the lead of the workers. So we've seen that very clearly with Starbucks. SEIU Workers United, they have come in and they have been supportive. But when I've talked to the workers, it is someone a Starbucks workers who handles their comms, who handles. So it, it's right. very scrappy. Uh, so, I mean, I get why some unions want a piece of the action and say like, okay, how can we, how can we insert ourselves here? But there's so much, there's so many workplaces that are unorganized. Um, and it, it's not just Starbucks. You see this with the weed dispensaries, you know, where folks are also fighting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to organize those sectors. Um, but I, you know, even for RWDSU, like I, I went down to Gainesville, Georgia, um, after there was a chemical leak and I'd be curious why the Mid-South Council doesn't go into Gainesville and talk to workers there and see like, Hey, we represent poultry workers in Alabama. We have a shared interest, um, in as, as workers in these poultry plants. Um, this is what we've done with our workers in Alabama. This is what the benefits of a union are. So I do think that unions do have to reassess the hot shopping and being general 
general unions and becoming more focused in key sectors because that's where the, their power and leverage will come from. Right. Luis, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Adam, do you have anything else? Uh, no, just that we'll see you at Labor Notes in yeah. a couple of weeks. Really excited about it and really appreciate all your work and, and the work of the entire Labor Notes team Thank for you. putting this amazing conference on. Yeah, we're looking forward to Jacob uh, facilitating Organize the South, our, our panel uh, discussion on, yeah. on the great stuff that's happening uh, down south. So thank you all for, for joining yeah. us. I'm lo- yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Dan sent me the list of folks that are going to be on. Looks like it's going to be a good panel. Uh, think we're going to be able to do. Dan is Dan is trying to get me set up to where we can do the show live from uh, Labor Notes on Saturday morning. Uh, so maybe we can we can just pull some folks as they're passing by and pull them in for an interview really quick. Yeah. Uh, but but it'll yeah, be like the I'm, Super Bowl for us. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah, or as Kim calls it, uh, labor prom. Labor so, prom. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, no, it'd be great. All right. Well, thanks, Louise. Really Thank looking you. forward to it. See you here in a few weeks. All right. Thanks for inviting me. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that was Luis Feliz Leon. He is a staff writer for Labor Notes. He has done the definitive reporting on the Amazon Labor Union. Check him out anywhere you read anything about labor news in these times, the real news. Um the American Prospect, and, of course, Labor Notes. We've got a couple other topics that we wanted to get to um, in overtime today. And uh, the first one is Elon Musk. Elon Musk made... (laughs) (sighs) (laughs) He made a lot of news last week. Um, First by announcing that he is a Republican... Adam, uh, let's let's play that. And I, I would class myself as, as a moderate and you know, neither Republican nor, nor Democrat. Um, and in fact, uh, I have voted voted overwhelmingly for Democrats uh, historically, overwhelmingly. Like, I, I'm not sure I, I might never have voted for a Republican, just to be clear. Right. Um, now, now, this election, I would. <laughs> now, Elon coming out as a Republican would only be a surprise to you if you don't know anything about bosses or his record. Um, In 2014, he donated $10,000 to Greg Abbott. In 2015, he donated $50,000 to Rahm Emanuel, uh, who is not technically a Republican, but he may as well be. He, you know, certainly is a right winger and was the nemesis of the Chicago Teachers Union uh, and really, you know, the Chicago social justice movements Mm -hmm. uh, the entire time he was mayor. In 2017, he donated at least $50,000 to Republicans. Um, And, you know, so look, I don't care if Elon as an individual votes for Republicans. It's really neither here nor there. It's not going to make a whole lot of difference. His money is like where his power is, right? His, His power doesn't come from Elon as an individual in the voting booth. Like who gives a shit, right? It doesn't matter. Um his power is in his money, and he's been using that money to support reactionary anti-worker politicians on the Democratic side and the Republican side for years. As long as he's had the money to throw around, he's been doing exactly that. But uh, let's see why he says that he's coming out. Now, let's play that clip. The Democratic Party is 
overly, overly controlled by the unions and by the uh, trial lawyers, particularly the class action uh, lawyers. Um, and generally, if, you, if you'll see something that, doesn't, that is not in the interest of the, of the people, um, it's, it, on, the, on the Democrat side, it's going to come because of the unions, uh, which is just another form of monopoly, and the, uh, the trial lawyers. Uh, the, uh, the, that's where actions will be happening from the Democrat side. They're not in the interest of the people. And then, um, to be fair, on the Republican side, uh, there's, there's, if you say, like, where is something like not, not ideal happening, it's because of corporate evil um, and uh, re religious zealotry. Um, but that's generally where the bad things will be coming from on the Republican side um, that are not representative of the people. So um, in, in the case of Biden, he is simply too, too much uh, captured by the unions, um, which, which was not the case with Obama. Um, so in the case of Obama, you could have, you know, he was sort of quite reasonable. Um, and I think he took more of a view uh, that, you know, obviously you need to take the concerns of the unions into account. But uh, there, are big, there are bigger issues at stake. And, and unfortunately, Biden does not do that. I wish we had the Biden he thinks we have. Yeah, I mean, wow. Um, Corporate evil and religious zealotry, apparently not as big of a deal as yeah. trial lawyers and unions, unions that represent yeah. about 10% of the country's workforce. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Ry, uh, Ry Ry in the chat says, uh, dude goes full teal here. He gives away the whole game. The right only uses culture war as a way to destroy unions. And I mean, that's exactly. Absolutely. That, this that, is so yeah. revealing. And yeah, I don't, I don't want to jump the gun. On, no, no, on no. Go point yeah. there. Because if you think about it, corporate evil, which he named specifically as something Republicans are about, and he's true. He's accurate there. Right. How do we fight back against corporate evil? The corporate evil that is uh, producing gilded age level of inequality, uh, corporate evil that is literally destroying our ecosystem and threatening the existence of our civilization and all life on Earth as we know it, corporate evil uh, that is represented in the form of a global empire corporate evil that leads to war and destruction all across this planet corporate evil that's what we experience as working class people and how do we fight back about against that well we don't have many tools in our tool belt tool belt to really fight back against it uh, if you are an individual worker and you've been screwed by your boss by your workplace your options really are to go to the union uh, and or to a lawyer. Right. <laughs> uh, now, there's, of course, direct action. There's demonstrations. There's petitions, boycotts. Of, you know, that's not to say that there aren't other means of forcing change. But it's very revealing that those are the two things that he focuses on. The fact that people will go to unions and to class action lawsuits to seek justice, to seek remedy. I'm sure it's just a coincidence that his own companies have a horrible record when it comes to union busting, when it comes to discrimination and earning mm. class action lawsuits. But the truth is, most bosses, most owners, really don't give a shit about you. They only care about the value you create. And to get them to respond to your concerns takes power. 
Right. That involves the collective power of a union, and that involves the credible threat of litigation. And as a you know a labor advocate in my past, I can tell you there were many situations that I got resolved to the benefit of the worker only because the bosses realized there was a credible threat of litigation. Right. In fact, I, th- I think you've got a story coming out of Chilton County Schools later in overtime. That would be a good example of that. I, I dealt with those similar type issues uh, because, unfortunately, the way our world works in this capitalist economy is that the power is concentrated at the top and the bosses know that you deserve, you depend on this salary or this wage to be able to feed your family. They know where the power lies. They know what they can get away with, and they are constantly pushing those lines and pushing those boundaries. And, you know, being able to file an EEOC complaint, being able to take someone to court uh, under the Fair Labor Standards Act for, you know, taking them to the Department of Labor for violating overtime pay, those are some of the few weapons we have, and you know it's one of the only ways you can actually get some some real change at at, at the uh, ground level. So I think it's very revealing that that's what he's highlighting here. I think he's being overly charitable to the Democratic Party, frankly, to assume that they do that they're captured by these things. Right. I, as someone who is a worker, as someone who has been a labor advocate. Um, I don't see that. I don't see that the Democratic Party is, you know, just dominated by labor unions and by, you know, our our kind of lawyers, the lawyers who would take up our cases and fight for us. Uh, so I think that's just a but it's revealing that I guess he fears that hmm. um, because there is obviously a momentum here in this country that. Luis was just talking about. There is a momentum of organizing across various industries. We see that public opinion polls are heavily in favor of unions. People support unions, by and large. People want a union if they don't have one yet. And uh, if they don't have a union, they still support the unions that they're aware of that are working in Amazon and Starbucks to organize. Right. And so I think there's a sense that the labor movement is resurgent, that people as workers are reevaluating things. That's why they're resigning. That's why they perhaps are willing to file lawsuits. That's why they're willing to file complaints with federal agencies. And so, you know, I think it's a we should probably take it as a compliment that Musk is out here putting his cards on the table like that because it reveals mm. there is a certain sense of fear among the ruling elites. Absolutely. We are and, and, waking up. And Jeff Bezos is doing the same thing. He's, right. he's doing he's acting incredibly bizarrely on Twitter now. Uh quote tweeting the president, um, trying to dunk on him and things like this. Just super totally out of character stuff uh that Bezos is doing. Um you know, because he, uh, you know, Amazon donated like a million dollars to uh, Black Lives Matter or something, right? And so, you know, these two of the, I mean, the two richest people in the world who tried to, for decades, present a 
liberal facade uh, are now, you know, their their masks are falling off and they're showing themselves to be, you know, just the same as any other capitalist and they're aligning with uh, the the party that most helps them, and and of course both of these parties help them, but but they're but they're now coming out. You know the Republicans have always uh, really really gone to the mat for capitalists, and and Democrats have tried to have have generally speaking, you know, on they want to have it both ways. They want to have it both ways, and they're and they're they try to be a party of the boss and the worker, and so you know of course they're doing the, most of the time they're doing more to serve the boss but they're still they're throwing bones to people and and so and 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 they've been throwing more bones lately and and just i mean imagine how like think about how little the average worker's life has changed since biden took office you know i mean i think there's been we're not shy about or to the extent that it's changed how much of that's actually been positive or negative right right i mean you know we're not we're not shy about saying there's a difference, but I mean the difference is is for most people pretty marginal, pretty marginal, and that marginal difference, that marginal difference is causing these lunatics to freak the hell out. Yeah, uh, I mean, could you imagine being the being the richest person in the world, and 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 having a breakdown about what is going on right now as far as worker power and, and everything. I mean – Right, because we crazy. actually have an NLRB that is doing its job for the first time in my yeah. lifetime. Uh, and one of our commenters, uh, uh-oh, uh, wisely pointed out how these government agencies, you know, such as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, for example, our Department of Labor – Generally speaking, the the odds are stacked against you. Like it's not as if, uh, and I know it's this is sort of a public misconception. People act as if you can just file these frivolous lawsuits right. on a whim for discrimination or uh, for wage theft or other issues, and you know the freakout over litigation is is not in touch with reality. No. Because the reality is, especially in a place like Alabama, where the judges up and down are reactionaries, is that you're probably going to lose. No matter how much evidence you have for your case, no matter how strong it is, no matter how strong your lawyer is, the odds are stacked against you. Right. Now, that's I'm not saying that to dissuade you from pursuing it, but it's just a reality, and I, I'm, I'm glad uh, one of the commenters po- pointed that out. They said they've been in the situation multiple times, and they always lost despite evidence. And believe me, I know that feeling. Right. Uh, I've lost an arbitration despite clearly yeah. you know, having the evidence on my side, and I've lost cases on behalf of other workers mm-hmm. that it, it was no, no dispute as you know any objective person could have seen – that we were in the right and right. the employer was in the wrong, but the system is stacked against us. But And I say all that to say, as stacked against us as it is, even that is too far for people like Jeff Bezos uh, and Elon yeah. Musk. Right. They don't want us to win ever. ever. No 
the, you know, the idea of even having the opportunity to file a complaint that probably isn't going to win is, is, is too much for them. Well, I mean, that's why he said trial lawyers, too, right? I mean, trial lawyers, the, the, what, what is, he's talking about class action lawsuits there. And the, the alternative to class action lawsuits is me as an individual consumer somehow finding thousands of dollars to hire a lawyer for myself to get back 30 bucks that AT&T stole from me. Right. Like, that's not going to happen. And so what happens if we don't have class action lawsuits? Uh, I... I, there's no way for me to get back the $30 that AT&T stole from me. It's just it, the law goes unenforced. So there's barely any accountability in the way in the system as it is today. But even that small, right. small window of accountability and opportunity for redress is is just too far. And, and I think what it goes to is that if you look at the economic statistics of this country, it's very clear – we are in a gilded age era. Mm. If you look at the wealth and income inequality of this country, it's very reminiscent of the gilded age right after the Civil War. And what I see would be the capitalist elites in this country want to return us to the similar political, social, cultural conditions of the gilded age. We already oh, yeah. have the inequality, right. so they want all the other stuff that comes with that. Right. Uh, you know, to finally undo what's left of the welfare state, what's left of the New Deal and the Great Society uh, and the trust busting. Right. All those, uh, you know, reforms over the past century that were fought for, that people died for, you know, however inadequate they may be, that is a bridge too far for these folks. They mm-hmm. want complete and total control and power. And they don't want to give up any of that power. They don't want any of us to have any opportunity to fight back when we're screwed over on our wages, when we are discriminated on the job. You know, I, I guess the only option – I don't know. I, I don't know that they want us to have any option whatsoever. Well, uh, They much prefer to deal with it, I guess, yeah. if they have to, with <clears throat> binding arbitration and nondisclosure agreements. And that's the next there because there may be another reason. There may be another reason for his coming out as a Republican at this oh, time. As soon as he said uh, that, I figured, okay, they must have evidence of him yeah. uh, being a perv. And that's exactly what happened. Insider has reported an incident where he sexually harassed a flight attendant and gave her two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to shut the hell up. From the article. The attendant worked as a member of the cabin crew on a contract basis for basis for SpaceX's corporate jet fleet. She accused Musk of exposing his erect penis to her, rubbing her leg without consent, and offering to buy her a horse in exchange for an erotic massage, according to interviews and documents obtained by Insider. Uh- <laughs> Buying her a horse. Um, in addition to that, they were encouraged to go to uh, 
masseuse school on their own dime so they could be better flight attendants for Elon Musk. Um, and after this all, uh, you know, she came forward. This has been years ago. Um, he paid her $250,000 and had her sign an NDA. This is coming out because of a friend of hers, not her. Um, and so because Elon Musk is a free speech warrior, I'm sure he's going to be releasing her from her NDA. Right. Um, yeah. Let's see. Let's see how committed you are to free speech when it comes to NDAs. Yeah. But the, I mean, this is another important reason for protections on the job and, and why, you know, things like trial lawyers and things like unions are so important for working people so that we don't have to put up with bullshit like this. Having this guy wave his fucking dick in my face. Like, I, d I don't have to put up with that shit, you know? And, and she, no one should. Nobody should. Nobody should. Sarah Nelson, president of the uh, American Flight, uh, the uh, Association of Flight Attendants (CWA), put out a statement. First and foremost, we've got the flight. We've got flight attendants backs everywhere in the universe. Musk's alleged actions in the cabin are a stark reminder of why flight attendants first organized 76 years ago to beat back discrimination and sexual harassment and assault by claiming our power to put misogyny and the privileged corporate class of men in check. And, and Kim Kelly wrote about this in her book, Fight Like Hell. And it was really, really good sections on flight attendants and, and how they fought against sexual harassment and discrimination and things like this. Uh, back to the statement from Sarah Nelson. Musk believes that money gives him the right to do anything that he pleases, regardless of the rights, humanity, or protestations of others. The fact that he required flight attendants to become licensed masseuses on their own dime mm. demonstrates what we, all, what we see all too often. The super rich think they own everything and have to pay for nothing. This attitude is all too common to flight attendants and is something all workers have had to deal with from day one. But this is no longer day one. We are in the time of the worker and we will not allow Elon Musk and his friends to continue treating workers as second class or disposable characters in their PlayStation. Flight attendants are not just another accessory on Musk's little rocket. His corporate America no longer holds the power it tried to take from workers. We know our worth and the power we have together. We're here on Earth, there on SpaceX and everywhere. He's going to have to face it or face the final frontier without any of the people who make it possible. Fantastic statement from Sarah Nelson. Um, and, and that's, you know, so uh, flight attendants that work for Elon Musk uh, hit her up. Yeah, absolutely. But that, that is pretty disgusting, though, the requirement to be a licensed masseuse on your own dime. Um, yeah. Lifestyle checked masseuse and flight attendant, two separate jobs. Right. Yeah, and that's, I mean, and, you know, so this is probably one of the reasons or, or a big reason that he's coming out as as a Republican because uh, who is going to be the group of people uh, that is going to protect uh, 
sexual harassers? Who's going to protect pervs? Who's going to protect, um, you know, abusers? It's the Republicans. <laughs> and, and the Democrats, maybe to a certain extent, but uh, the Republicans more so, certainly. Right, they're, because they're there it can be – he can pitch it as a badge of honor. It's, right. It's the woke mob coming And that's to what he's doing. Now. But like the, the hours before the uh, – Probably about the same time they reached out for his comments as oh, yeah, reporters yeah. tend to do, right? They reach out to the person before they publish it. And that's probably when he decided to write this tweet. If I it had is. To guess. Oh, it okay. Is, actually, well, so not that that video that we watched. It was from a couple days before the article. But he's been tweeting like really, really weird stuff um, in the run up to, and then since the publication. But he was, you know, talking about. Um, he was talking about something. Um, Something about I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be attacked by the woke left or something. Um, it, yeah, he he tweets so much that I can't find it right now. He tweets more than me, I think. Um, but he works a lot, is what they say. And I, I think some of this could also be him freaking out because Tesla's stock has been tanking uh this whole twitter Mm. purchase that he was engineering is not going the way he planned it to right uh at least it doesn't seem like so well and there was so so here's the tweet in the past i voted democrat because they were mostly the kindness party but they have become the party of division and hate so i can no longer support them and will vote republican now watch their dirty tricks against me unfold (laughs) yeah i mean um but also there was something else that he did that 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 was that caught all of the attention, and he did it on the same day that Tesla recalled 130,000 cars. Yeah, he is a master of distraction. Yeah, he knows how to drive media cycles I mean, in just a way. Like Trump in that way, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Two peas in a pod. Yeah. They, they're perfect for each other because they are great at that kind of distraction. They can get the media uh, talking about whatever they want them to talk about as opposed to issues within their own companies uh, and, you know, legitimate issues. Right. Let's talk about a couple crazy Alabama people really quick. Um, there, there may be a few of those. There may be a few of those. Uh, we didn't get to this in the main show, but it's not important enough to save it for next week. Uh, so let's go ahead and play that Dale Strong attack ad against Wardinsky. I want, Adam, I want you to tell me, um, you know, as somebody who was an educator during his tenure as superintendent, uh, I want to see if Dale Strong's ad about Wardinsky tracks with uh, with reality. <laughs> okay. And yeah, and just so everyone knows, I have not heard this or, or seen this, so this will be this will be new for me. And then lastly, the idea that we should not overturn Roe v. Wade because people might have to figure out child care and time off from work and the price of gas. My God, don't parents already figure that stuff out? Haven't they been figuring that stuff out from time immemorial? I mean, from the beginning of time, Adam and Eve, didn't they have to figure out what to do with child care? I would suspect they did. So Dalton Johnson, you're a knucklehead. And the very idea that you're just trying to protect your revenue-producing option there at the health care clinic for women in, in, in Huntsville, I mean, all you're doing is just trying to preserve your revenue stream. You're not overly worried about the women and the price of gas and the child care. And, oh, this is awful. This is going to be bad.
okay. Um, where do I start? So, <laughs> by no means could anyone ever objectively describe Casey Radinsky as someone who is uh, progressive, who is left, who is um, liberal, um, anti-racist. No, none of those things would accurately describe uh, Casey Radinsky. And, uh, but there is some truth to this ad, and I'll say how. He really did uh, adamantly claim that Common Core would be taught in Huntsville City Schools regardless of what the state government said. That's true. Um, he was big on Common Core. There's a lot of reasons. Uh, the, the whole debate around Common Core has been totally hijacked by right-wing weirdos who think it was, you know, Obama's plot to turn their children gay or, you know, something bizarre like that. That's not really why uh, you should be concerned about it. Uh, it was a set of standards basically developed on Bill Gates's dime uh, by a small cabal of corporate influencers, not actual educators. So that aside, um, yes, Wardinsky was very pro-Common Core, and um, it had nothing to do with putting a progressive curriculum in place uh, at all. Uh, the other piece of it about critical race theory. So, uh, and I may have mentioned this to you before, Jacob, the first time I actually encountered critical race theory, the phrase in the wild uh, was about 2015. I was a, at a training for Huntsville city schools where we were, developing equity teams. Uh, as I mentioned in our video on Wardinsky, Huntsville City Schools is under a consent order. It's a consent decree from the Department of Justice and federal courts uh, over the longstanding uh, desegregation case from 50 years ago. So basically, there were some training requirements that came out as a part of that to try to address inequities in the system and, and racism within uh, the school system. So I was uh, at, at this training, um, and yes, critical race theory was discussed. Uh, I remember it being mentioned and like flashed up on the screen on the PowerPoint. Uh, white privilege was discussed. Um, they, there were a couple of consultants, I think from Colorado, uh, who were doing this training. And so this all really did happen. Wow, uh, so Comrade Wardensky. You know, so now how much did he know about <laughs> what was occurring there? I don't know. Um, he's certainly not a proponent of any of that. Uh, he is a proponent of trying to see what he can get away with under federal supervision. And conducting these trainings was a way to you know, get the federal government off his back. Uh, because ultimately, his goal and the goal of kind of the local elites here was to get the DOJ and the federal courts out of Huntsville City Schools. And the only way they could do that was by getting this consent order and, you know, feeling a little pain for a while, uh, which included having training such as this. Because their long-term goal is that Ultimately, they're left to their own devices, which means they can build schools wherever they want, 
they right. can um, have schools as segregated as they want. For our very local listeners, think the Hampton Cove area. Mm. There won't be a high school in Hampton Cove under DOJ supervision, but if they manage to get DOJ out of town, that's when you can have a nice, new, shiny high school for the white side of town. Mm. Um, but it's, it is funny to see Wardinsky running as a, you know, he's Mr. Trump, he's the Trump bootlicker, he's an America first nationalist. His opponents are now pointing, <laughs> painting him as this uh, progressive critical race theory proponent. So he's just, you know, he's getting hit from all sides. Um, he's he's hopefully not going to make the runoff, but by all accounts, he is the second place candidate for this fifth congressional district. Oh wow! He's raised about a half a million dollars. Uh, a lot of max donations. A lot of corporate and PAC money has flown into his coffers. There's a very legitimate chance that he is in a runoff mm. uh, for this this race. And, uh, yeah, Casey Wardinsky, I've never met a man more narcissistic in my life, and I've dealt with a lot of bosses and managers and supervisors of various stripes and, and politicians, for that matter. Uh, mm. None of them come close in terms of the level of narcissism and uh, really a, a crook through and through. Mm. So that's my thoughts. Um, couldn't happen to a better guy. <laughs> couldn't happen to a better guy. I, I hope that all the right-wing weirdos continue to pile on him. Is As sad as it is for the discourse of our country and the ways in which, you know, CRT is like a dog whistle for virtually anything they don't like, um, you know, if, if it happens to hurt him in the process, at least there's something good to come out of it. There you go. We've got another right-wing weirdo, um, Tim James. Uh, so we, we've got a – you alluded to this earlier, but we've got a t- uh, prison problem here in the state of Alabama. Uh, and we have among the highest incarceration rates of all the states in the U.S., and the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world, and I think even in the history of the world. Like, I think that there are more people in American prisons than the Soviet Union had in the gulags. At the height of Stalin. At, at the height of Stalin, right? So Absolutely. that That is true. Uh, so Tim James has some ideas about fixing it that he laid out in an interview with right-wing propagandist Jeff Poor. He actually starts out well saying the long-term fix is to reduce recidivism. Okay, you know, so far so good. Uh, 65% of prison inmates wind up right back in prison. So if you can bring the recidivism down from 65 to, let's say, 45%, that is a tremendous savings in money because it costs about $25,000 to incarcerate an individual in our prisons. Okay, you know, I mean, that's... So that's so far so good, right? So how does he propose that we do that? Uh, Does he support... Sending fewer people to prison in the first place because we know that just the act of sending somebody to prison makes them more likely to go back. Uh, does he support maybe a massive public jobs program in impoverished areas because we know that poverty is a leading indicator of crime? 
Um, maybe he is proposing something to incentivize employers to hire ex-convicts. Those are all logical, you know, yeah. reasonable solutions to our prison crisis in this state. But he rejects all of those and says uh, they should go to church more. From the article, he is quoted as saying, how do you do that? Outreach. Christian outreach programs work. Prison Fellowship Ministries founder Chuck Colson proved it. I want a massive faith-based outreach program in all of our prisons in the years ahead. And we can reduce recidivism. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we've got church and state issues here. We've got the fact that, well, it just doesn't work. Um, and, uh, then the fact that this doesn't actually address the, the problem of people being arrested, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but hey, they'll pray for you. They'll pray for you. They don't mind locking you in a cage maybe even keeping you there in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. They don't mind you going into a facility that's dangerous and overcrowded, where you may contract a disease, where you may be beaten, where you may be killed. But uh, they will pray for you. I mean, I, I this guy is just, like, not... I mean, he's, yeah, like, not a smart he's, he's You know, it's, it's a sad reflection of Alabama that he's even a serious candidate. Yeah. You know, it's because both with him and, and some of these others, right. you see their ads and you see their, hear their rhetoric, and it's almost a parody. Yeah. I mean, there's some of these. There was an ad I saw recently for a judge that mm. no shit I thought was like an SNL spoof. I thought it was. I thought it was just. Right. I thought it was a parody at first. Um, but. You know, evidently they believe that's what the voters of Alabama want to hear. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, and to the extent that there is any truth in that, that's the reflection of 200 years in this state of elites dividing and conquering. Right. And ensuring a population that's undereducated, underinvested in, uh, and, and torn apart by various forms of bigotry and fundamentalism. We'll wrap up with a, a better story. We've got an episode out of Chilton County, Alabama, that shows the importance and the benefit of even a union so weak that they don't like to be called a union. <laughs> um, AL.com has been following a story about overpayments in the Chilton County school systems. Employees are now expected to pay back tens of thousands of dollars that they were supposedly overpaid over the course of years. The county has been paying them for years, uh, apparently more than they were supposed to be getting. And now they're saying you got to pay back tens of thousands of dollars. And the AEA, the Alabama Education Association, um, who is a professional association for educators in the state of Alabama, um, in other states... 
the NEA affiliates call themselves a union, but the AEA shies away from that. <laughs> and uh, But they're fighting back with a lawsuit from a recent article on the saga in, the a- in AL.com. The suit claims the two employees were unaware of the overpayments. They were not given due process, meaning they had no chance to contest the overpayment. And employees will suffer serious, adverse financial harm through no fault of their own if they're required to pay the money back, which is, like, obviously true. I mean... I don't see how you could I don't see how you could dispute that. Judge Sibley Reynolds granted plaintiffs request for a temporary restraining order to keep the district from automatically deducting payments while the lawsuit is considered. The Alabama Education Association is providing legal representation for the plaintiffs, both of whom are members of the organization. We want to make sure these employees are treated fair. AEA Associate Director Taryn Stokes said, and we know that they don't owe one dime back to the Board of Education. What they're trying to do to them and their family is unconscionable, which is true. Yeah, and and I've experienced that here in Huntsville. Uh, I'll never forget some of the cafeteria workers and custodial workers who were caught up in, in a similar issue where the district allegedly discovered they had been overpaying some of these employees uh in this case for years as well and it was a relatively small amount but right over the years it adds up yeah over over the years it adds up once you factor in overtime it adds up and um what would happen is somebody in the finance department would you know discover this mistake allegedly assuming it's true right uh because if they made the mistake on the front end, what's to say they're not mistaken now? Right. Uh, with their new math, but regardless, what you know, they would discover it, and then in the cases I dealt with, the school district wanted it all paid back the very next check mm. within one, you know, within that month's check, and it could have been a problem that existed for years. Right. So. My argument was, well, if it took you two years to make the mistake, why can't you allow the person two years to pay you back? Mm-hmm. Seems reasonable. Uh, and when you're talking about a custodian or a cafeteria worker, you know they're lucky if they're bringing home a thousand dollars after taxes and benefits are taken out. Right. And you want to take, you want to claw back payments all at once crazy um i don't think to be fair if you know if if we wanted to do such a thing the chilton county board of education is not doing that they they have proposed payment plans but yeah and i think uh part of the dispute here is whether or not they even they they even know anything at all right um but i definitely experienced it where you know the district i think made a, a valid argument that there had been overpayment that seemed on the up and up and it, that wasn't really in dispute, but for some reason they thought it was acceptable to try to claw back these payments all in one chunk right? without considering the fact that this custodian is in my office crying because she doesn't know how she's going to keep her lights on for the month. Um, Bosses. And, and that shows you the, the lack of empathy, the lack of concern they have for employees. It's just numbers on a spreadsheet. Yeah. And so, yeah, I do applaud uh, AEA for, for taking up this this fight to the courts uh, and good for the judge for actually issuing the temporary restraining order. 
uh, a lot more of this needs to happen because it's happening all over the state, I can assure you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's going to be it for today's episode of the show. We appreciate your time. If you would like to help us stay on the air, you can buy our new hat. You can make a one-time or recurring donation all at tvlr.fm. Uh, share, follow, like, and subscribe on social media. We're now on TikTok. Tell your friends. And uh, don't forget to review on your podcasting platform of choice if you'd like to leave us a voicemail share your thoughts on the contents of today's episode ask us a question share a bad boss story or an organizing win the phone number is 844-899-TVLR that is 844-899-8857 my name is Jacob Morrison my co-host is Adam Keller and we will see you next week